Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. The critical comparison test for the Supercars Gen 3 prototypes took place at the Queensland Raceway on Monday as the series looks to put Ford's concerns over parity to bed. While all parties are remaining tight-lipped on the exact outcome of the test, it appears headway and at least the verification of data has been made. The assessment of that data will determine the next steps, including if more runway running is required. Barry Ryan, meanwhile, provided a somewhat frank assessment of the Gen 3 build process with an open letter to fans last week where he admitted the Erebus Camaros are unlikely to be on track until the third week of February. One side effect of the rush build is that the Gen 3 cars won't be fitted with in-car anti-roll bar adjusters for at least the first part of the season. Supercars is also working on rules regarding front and rear clips and how complete they can be when sitting in the spares bank. Nick Perkett has ramped up his preparations ahead of a crucial supercars campaign with a trip to Perth to do some driver coaching in a radical. He was joined at Wanneroo Raceway by his new race engineer, Adam Austin. Bryce Ford will carry Midi's electrical colours on his Brad Jones Racing Camaro this supercars season thanks to the continuation of his long-term support from the company. Audi's lineup for the Bathurst 12-hour has been revealed with factory guns Matthias Drudy, Christopher Haza and Patrick Niederhauser leading the way in an all-pro entry. Other Europeans in the lineup include Ricardo Feller and Christopher Mees, who will share with Yasser Shahin, while Frederick Vervish will partner James Golding and Brad Schumacher in the Premier Racing Run entry. Former Bathurst 1000 and Bathurst 12-hour winner Jono Webb, meanwhile, will make his return to racing in an R8 with James and Theo Kondouris and Dave Russell. Speaking of the Bathurst 12-hour, the full commentary lineup has been revealed with John Hindoff returning to a race commas role alongside Richard Crow and Garth Tander. Shay Adams also returns as a pit reporter alongside Chad Nalon and Mark Beretta, while Matt Nolte will look after the supports. Tim Slade will make his Trans Am debut in Tasmania next month as a stand-in for teenager Elliot Cleary in the Racing Academy lineup. Cleary is too young to take part in the Simmons Plains event, but will take over the car for the rest of the season. And a number of significant Aussie touring cars will go under the hammer this Sunday as part of the Unreal Collection by Lloyd's Auctions. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that is always a good 10 or 11 kilometres per hour faster down the chute than me, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you this week? Well, I'm very well, Andrew, although I'd be pretty suspicious that you're sandbagging if you're that much slower than me on the straights. Has been known to happen. It has been known to happen. Anyway, let's uh, let's get stuck into this the battle for Gen 3 parity, which continued at Queensland Raceway on Monday with that all-important comparison test between the Mustang 
and the Camaro, which even now I just think about it like, yeah, how fast was that Camaro going? I guess we'll never know. Anyway, <laughs> uh, neither Ford nor Supercars are saying too much about the actual outcome of the test at the moment, but here's what we do uh, know. The test was run by Supercars with assistance from the homologation teams as per usual, uh, while Ford had representatives from all of its teams on the ground. Uh, setups and tyre condition were closely monitored to make sure it was a true performance comparison and the cars are running in the same conditions at the same time. Uh, and it appears from the whispers coming out of the test that everyone was at least satisfied with the data that was collected. Now, that does doesn't necessarily mean that parity has been agreed upon. Uh, and from what I understand, you know, more runway running isn't off the table just yet. But what it means is that things seem to be heading in the right direction and the right data is now available for the next steps to be determined. Or at least Ford has got confidence in the data that's available to it to sort of try and decide where they go from here. Um, more on what will happen next could come to light later this week with plans for for some sort of public statement to be made from either Ford or supercars or both. Uh, Stephen, what did you hear coming out of QR yesterday? Yeah, well, there was some positive noise coming out of it about the cars being close, so hopefully they don't need to go back to the runway. But as you say, it was about data gathering. It wasn't about making a spur of the moment conclusion at the end of the day. So they've got to go through the data carefully and move forward from here based on science and not political pressure. But it was obviously a pretty serious test program. Like it was all done behind closed doors mm-hmm. and with the A-grade drivers aboard. And as we've seen, they've tried to keep those homologation team drivers away from most of the testing, certainly through last year, in order to fend off any hints of favoritism but yesterday they had Shane Van Gisbergen and Brock Feeney in the Camaro which I believe was Shane's first time in the car since Tassie last year and then in the Ford they had James Courtney, Anton Di Pasquale and Garth Tander which was kind of an unusual way to get for Garth to have his first drive of a Ford supercar in 25 years. It is interesting, you know, that, that Shane hadn't driven the car for so long. I guess the sort of form he's in, he could be seen as an irregularity in the data in terms of what he could potentially drag out of a car um, compared to the um, to the other blokes. But, yeah, look, it's clearly clearly it is crunch time with this thing. Um, they need the information to be able to go and make a decision on what happens next because time is running out. And, again, we spoke about it last week. It isn't necessarily slowing the build process up because we're talking about, you know, mounting positions of rear wing elements and, and that sort of stuff, which can be changed pretty quickly. But still, you know, we've got to get it right and we've got to get it right pretty soon so guys can start testing these cars and we can we can make sure we go to Newcastle with a full field of Gen 3 cars ready to race. Now, speaking of that, while all this has been going on, teams are continuing to build their Gen 3 cars. Um, there's been some fascinating um, and I guess sometimes contrasting messaging coming out from the different teams about how this build process is going now. If we go back to early in the new year, Blanchard Racing Team sent out a pick of its Mustang on wheels, engine fitted, stickers on the bodywork. That was by far the most advanced build that we'd seen outside of the prototypes. Brad Jones Racing, meanwhile, has been doing a really interesting series of videos about the Gen Three build. Uh, one of the more recent ones was a general update on the first car that they're building. And I have to say, when you see how much work it still needs, even I was feeling anxious by the end of that, and I don't have to build the thing before you know early next month to try and go out and do some testing. Um, and then in terms of actually painting a picture of the scrambled teams are in, the best insight undoubtedly came last week from Barry Ryan at Erebus. You know, he wrote an open letter outlining what was still needed, why there had been these delays, and admitted that his cars were unlikely to turn a lap until that week of February 13, which is a timeline we discussed 
on the show last week, Steph. And now before we get into Baz's letter a little bit more, what's been your take on these differing approaches to the public messaging of the team builds? Yeah, it's been interesting seeing how the different teams have gone about keeping the fans updated on what's going on. Like clearly Brad Jones Racing has been the most proactive with it because they've not only been showing the progress of the builds but also doing those little explainer videos on some of the different elements of the cars and I think full marks to them for for doing that in terms of it's important to take fans on the journey and and bring them along with this and it was something that Kelly Racing did really well when they went from Nissan to Ford a couple of years ago so Mm -hmm. yeah just they've they've not only populated their own social channels with with those videos but it's got them a pretty decent run in the motorsport media in terms of the websites as well. Absolutely. Let's let's have a bit of a chat about uh, Baz's letter. Now, in typical Barry Ryan style, he really didn't hold back. Um, he said that, and that's at both ends of the spectrum in terms of the positive and the and the negative. You know, he said that thanks to Erebus's Fabby Jimmy White, that the team will have the best chassis and clips in the category. Um, he blamed the rush on um, the you know the rush build on delays for control components that are outside the team's control at the moment. Um, he ran through a list of what they don't have, which includes. The motors, exhaust, airboxes, radiator ducts, front splitters, front crash bars, dashboard, driver leg protection, rear wings, and uprights. So that's a fair old list of some pretty critical parts if you want to go motor racing. Um, he said that the team could have sent out a pick of the car on wheels and pretend it's nearly ready, but, and I quote, that would be misleading and simply waste critical time that can be spent making things better. Um, and he finished by saying that he won't test the cars until they are 100% complete, and that isn't likely to be until the week of February 13, which is what, three weeks out from the start of the season. Um, Stefan, brutal honesty isn't necessarily a communication strategy we see a lot in supercars, to be honest. What, what did you make of the letter? And do you think that line about a pick of a car on wheels was, you know, just maybe a cheeky dig at BRT? Oh, yeah, clearly that was a dig, which I guess is interesting because the uh, the Cool Drive group and, and Racer Industries are supplying quite a few parts to Gen 3 as well. But, I mean, I can see where, where Barry's coming from with that. But at the same time, like, BRT really got stuck in to do as much as they could in December last year, as, like as early as they could. So I don't really blame them for wanting to go and share that with the world and uh, and being first out the gate with it at the start of the year, but well, they're one they're one of the few teams south of the Queensland border that actually thinks February they could have a car on track February one that are not giving up on that deadline. Anyway, yeah, they've really uh, they've really pushed on to to do all they can as quickly as they can. And in terms of the rest of Barry's letter, there, I mean, yeah, it was great to see that honesty, and and I think it's important as well because you don't want fans and sponsors thinking that all of these cars are going to turn up at the first test if they're not going to. So there's that. I I mean, yeah, you call it brutally honest, but also I'd I'd wager that that letter was a fair bit tamer than the rest of the Gen 3-related emails in Barry's outbox, don't you think? (laughs) I think that's a pretty good point. Ah, yes, there would be some fairly spicy messaging going on there for sure. Let's uh, let's stick with Gen 3 for a moment. There's been another twist in the on-again, off-again saga that is – these in-car anti-roll bar adjusters. Now, just to recap, it was back in like early 2021 that it really looked like supercars was going to purposely ban the hydraulic adjusters that allow drivers to tune the roll bars and that allows them to tune the car balance on the fly as tyre wear 
and fuel loads change. Um, and then going after going through the whole shift storm thing with the uh, with the sequential shift on the paddles and that sort of stuff, there was suddenly this big focus on the theatre of the onboard footage. Um, so the, the initial decision, or at least the the musings over whether they should be banned, that was all. Um, you know, reversed. The adjusters were back. We were going to have in-car adjusters. Now when the rush to get these cars finished, they've been dumped again. Uh, Supercars told me late last week that there may come a point um, where, you know, the adjusters are revisited during the season. They could be introduced, although it doesn't necessarily sound like that is a certainty. Um, In the meantime, if drivers want to make a roll bar change, it will have to happen during a pit stop where the crew can do it under the car, like in GT racing, pretty unlikely in a sprint race, but maybe doable during the fuel races. Um, I do love seeing drivers swinging off the bars, Stefan. So this is a bit of a shame, I reckon. What's your take on it? Yeah, it's become part of the art of driving the cars these days. And as you say, it is good to watch as well. I certainly do believe the plan is that they will reintroduce it mid-season. And I I think the drivers will miss not having it more than we will, to be honest. I mean, if you look at the fact that the Gen 3 cars will be overall lighter than Gen 2, but actually have a bigger and taller fuel tank, the balance change as the fuel burns down will be even more significant. Mm-hmm. So not being able to counter that with the bars will be quite awkward for the drivers, I'd think. And, you know, no doubt that's played into the decision here of supercars. They didn't want to go into the opening rounds if some people could have it in time and others couldn't. So they've said that's not essential for now. We've got more important things to, to get finished. But uh, I do think we'll see that later in the year. Another impending rule change is the formalisation of regulations regarding the treatment of spare clips for the chassis. Now, as we know with the Gen 3 cars, there are three parts of the chassis, the main structure, and then these bolt-on front and rear clips. The idea is to make the cars easier and faster to repair. If you damage a clip, you can take it off and bolt on a new one um, instead of having to go through extensive chassis repairs. But a few teams have indicated that they expect there to be limits in place as to what can actually be attached to the clip before it's ready to be put into service, if that makes sense. I'm not really sure about this one because I thought the idea of the clips was to make repairs as easy as possible to try and cut down cars missing races due to damage. Um, At the same time, I don't think there will be enough spares in the short term for teams to be building complete front ends ready to go anyway. But it's kind of an, yeah, I don't know. I don't quite fully understand yet why this rule is coming. Yeah, I can't say I'm fully across that either. So we need to sort of wait and find out more about it. But naturally, I mean, all sorts of spares are going to be tight in the first part of the year for everyone. So if supercars are in any way trying to encourage teams to share their spares at the racetrack, it'd be handy if the foot bone's not connected to the leg bone and so on and so forth when they go into the truck to retrieve one. Yep, that definitely, definitely makes sense. Uh, Before we move on from supercars, Steph, and there were some interesting comments from Jamie Winkup Yesterday, he was rather unimpressed that Brock Feeney won't get his three additional rookie test days this season. That's because of a revision to the somewhat controversial two-year rookie rule that now strips a driver of his second-year privileges if if they finish in the top 10 in the championship in their rookie year, their actual rookie year. Um, Stefan, I'm going to be honest. I can't say I feel overly sorry for Feeney or for Triple Eight or Wink Up here. I've always found the two year two years of rookie testing to be a bit over the top. Um, And given what a huge advantage that additional testing will be this year with the new cars, I really don't think second-year drivers should be eligible. I guess where Triple Eight is a bit stiff in all this is that 
Thomas Randall will still get the extra days in his second season. Um, the fairest solution probably would have been to just can the whole thing after a driver's proper rookie season. What do you reckon? Well, I mean, I can absolutely understand Jamie's frustration because not only has the rule changed, but it's clearly been crafted to stop Brock accessing those days. And that doesn't seem right. I mean, that's punishing Brock for doing a good job last year, essentially. So, yeah, I think it would have been better just to cut it out uh, for the second year for all rookies. So, yeah. I don't know how many sports call you a rookie in your second year, um, not to mention yeah. the fact that these guys have tended to do a fair bit of Super 2 and whatever beforehand. So Yeah, and Enduros, that's the thing. It's hard, it's very hard to look at Thomas Randall and go, yeah, there's a rookie. Good on him for getting that extra running. The guy's been dry. I can't remember the last, the first time he drove a supercar, but it was, it was a long time ago. Yeah, and there's people chalking up their 50th career race and these other milestones and they're still a rookie, which is all very yeah. bizarre. But the other bit about this rule that doesn't sit comfortably is that it actually opens the door a little bit for some tanking. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. unlikely, but if you've got Matt yeah. Payne, Declan Fraser or Cameron Hill who are going to be the rookies, first-year rookies this year and they yeah. happen to be running P10 in points into the last race, I mean there's now an incentive there for their team to tell them to roll out of it, which um, yeah. that's, that's never good. I totally get it because three test days is a big deal. Particularly, you know, it's going to take time to get up to speed with these new cars. There will be a big advantage to having that testing time next season in 2024. I totally agree. I think it does leave the door ajar for that, which is, yeah, it should just be you are a rookie once in your first season. That's it. Anyway, let's move on from Supercar, Stefan, and chat about the Bathurst 12-hour. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we finally got the full Audi lineup with plenty of Euro imports. That was sort of the last big announcement we were waiting on ahead of the 12-hour. Um, I tell you what, the Pro-Am battle is going to be pretty good. You know, last week we were talking about Pro-Am, line, Pro-Am lineups with David Reynolds and Aaron Love and Richie Stanaway and Jamie Winkup, and now we've got Chris Mees and and Frederick Vavish in Pro-Am Audis. Um, the one name I wasn't expecting to see on the roster was Jono Webb, who will make a return <laughs> to the driver's seat after kind of flying under the radar for a year or so since um, he sold up the Techno Supercars team to, to Peter Zibris. Uh, Stefan, what's caught your eye from this mass announcement of Audi drivers for Bathurst. Yeah, well, this was kind of a funny one that Audi announced their whole fleet at the same time featuring all these factory stars, but the interest here was kind of all about Webby. I'd love to know what the Audi guys in Germany thought of that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the thing with these factory blokes, though, is they could send any of them, and they're all exceptionally good. Like yeah. Audi and these other manufacturers just ship them out, plug them in, and they're good to go. It's... Uh, yeah, it's part of what the race is about, but uh, yeah, it certainly was no surprise that there was a lot of interest in in Webby making a comeback. While we're on the subject of the 12-hour, the broadcast team has been officially confirmed by Supercars Media. Now, there's a few changes compared to last year where we had this sort of all-Australian Pro-Am event. Uh, we do have John Hindoff from Radio Le Mans returning to the race calling team. He'll be alongside Richard Crail and Garth Tander, who decided not to race and to call instead for a second year running. That means Matt Nolte, who called the race with Crowley and GT last year, has been shifted over to supports. Um, I know there's history with Radio Le Mans at the 12 hour, but you know we talked about this last year, Steph, and the commentary for the race last year was the best that it's ever been. I mean, apart from GT losing his voice pretty early on, those three blokes really nailed it. I guess the obvious explanation for this change is that you know there's always been this desire to have a different accent to provide an international flavour to this race because 
you know, that, that's got to be what it is because as a caller, Nolts is about as polished as you can possibly get. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, they clearly want an international element, so that's what they've gone with. But, I mean, to be honest, I don't care who commentates as long as they are informative and they're not shouting at me for 12 hours. Make of that what you will, Andrew. I could have some bad news coming for you, Stefan. Well, the other thing about the TV and the Bathurst 12 hour is there's still no Friday coverage. Yeah, it's, no. only, it's only the online commentary, so... Um, yeah, we can look forward to uh, covering uh, Friday practice as a sort of game of Cluedo, trying to solve the mystery of who did what and where if a car goes in the wall. Uh, good old-fashioned Nats off report. <laughs> you can learn a surprising amount. Anyway, um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Stefan, there is some tasty machinery going under the hammer as part of Lloyd's Auctions sale of the Unreal Collection this weekend. Now, the Unreal Collection features an incredible array of racing and road cars from a private collection. Here are some of the highlights. A three-time Australian Touring Car Championship winning Pete Gagan Mustang, the Pete Gagan Craven Mild Monaro Sports Sedan, Scott Pye's Albert Park winning WAU ZB Commodore restored to that race winning Boost Mobile Livery, Alan Moffat's 1980 Bathurst Falcon XD, two Falcon hardtops that raced at Bathurst in the 70s, two Perkins Engineering built supercars, and Peter Brock's last Tirana XU1 race car, and plenty more as well on top of that. Uh, Stefan, anything take your fancy out of that bunch? Oh, it's impossible to go past that Gagan Mustang, especially being the only car to have won the ATCC three times. That uh, that car was sold at auction less than two years ago for uh, six hundred and forty-five grand. So we'll uh, see what it does this time. And I think when you look at some what some of the people ask for the more recent. Aussie touring cars, that uh, that figure seems uh, pretty cheap. Hmm, it does. It does. Oh, well, I'll take the Scott Pye ZB and we'll have a race and see who... Uh, you beauty. See I'll be having more fun. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> I'm, I reckon I'll be having a bit of fun as well. Anyway, the auction <laughs> kicks off at uh, 12 p.m. this Sunday. It'll be live-streamed via the Lloyd's Auctions Facebook page. So tune in and see what some of this pretty awesome uh, machinery is going to go for. All right, let's take a look at what's happening around the world. Tom Blomquist scored pole for the Rolex 24 at Daytona. In the Acura, he will share with Colin Brown, Helio Castroneves, and Simon Pagano. Matt Campbell's Porsche will start the race from second, thanks to the efforts of co-driver Felipe Nazra in qualifying. Charlie Wirtz leads the Castrol Toyota Formula Regional Oceana Championship after the second round at Teratonga, thanks to wins in race one and the feature race. Callum Hedge won the other race. And Sebastian Ogier is now a nine-time Monte Carlo Rally winner after dominating the World Rally Championship season opener. He led home reigning world champion in Calais, Raven Pera and Thierry Neuville. Motorsport Network's WRC correspondent Tom Howard was on the ground in Monte Carlo for the event, and I grabbed him for his thoughts on the first round of 2023. Uh, Tommy, thanks for jumping on the line amid the glitz and glamour of Monte Carlo or Nice or wherever you happen to be. This morning as we're talking, um, there was a bit of talk about it being a, an unusually dry Monte Carlo rally over the weekend. How has the weather been? Yeah, you're absolutely bang on. Um, it was, uh, yeah, very sort of unseasonably warm. Um, and, yeah, this year, uh, many people were saying this is the driest Monte Carlo there has ever been. Um, obviously, in the past, there have been, have been dry Monte Carlo, but, yeah, this was definitely different. Um, you know, the obviously... 
you know, you can talk about the effects of global warming, but this is a classic example of where you can sort of see that because, uh, you know, absolutely no snow at all. And it's not just Monte Carlo, all the ski resorts around here too uh, are really struggling at the moment with, without any snow. So, um, yeah, it was just basically a flat out tarmac rally. Um, so very sort of un Monty like. So to be honest with you, yeah, it took away an element because what is so good about the Monty when it's, in it's usual, uh, is that sort of element of risk and snow and ice and like what tyres do you choose and all those sort of variables and extra skill levels that the drivers need to be able to you know pick out where the slippery bits are. Um, yeah, that, that was sort of taken away a little bit this year, so a bit of, bit of a shame. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's still interesting to see those these roads are not easy um, with their sort of rhythms of, of, of hairpins and everything. So still a tough challenge, but yeah, certainly the challenge was lessened a little bit. Well, it obviously doesn't make a big difference to Sebastian Ogier. I mean, he's uh, took a record ninth win on the uh, on the roads around Monte Carlo. I mean, he is just the master of that joint. Whether there's any you know snow on the edge of the road or not, it seems. Yeah, no, he's just uh, as you say, he's just uh, one of those sort of freak of nature people. Obviously, last year we had the, the sort of the battle of the goats between Loeb and Ogier. Obviously, sadly this year Loeb was unable to. Uh, get a deal with M Sport and obviously his Dakar commitments made it pretty difficult for him to be here too. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> it's very much OJ was going to be the favourite just purely because of his experience. And this is one of those rallies where the experience counts the most. And you only have to look at his record. In the, in the last 11 years, OJ's won one eight and finished on the podium, uh, finished second three times, which is a phenomenal record, really. Um, so, yeah, no, he's just a. He's just unstoppable in these on these roads. Like he obviously grew up not far from here in, in a town of Gap, so you know this is his back garden, really. So um, to be able to come here and, and beat him, you really have to do something special. And uh, yeah, no, <laughs> as good as the our competition is, uh, yeah, no, Sebastian had this under control from day one and uh, actually led from Thursday right to Sunday, never headed. So um, it was. Probably as uh, sort of easy as you could get. You know, they're never easy these victories, but it was a vintage OJ display. Do you think the fact that you know he comes into an event like this, knowing that well, his competitors know that he's only doing a partial season. I mean, does that kind of maybe change the mentality of the guys going up against him and the risk they're going to take? Because really, if you look at it, I mean, that was a perfect start to the season or start to the title defence for Calais Rovenpera to come home second. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's a very, very good point. And the fact that, to be honest with you, Cali will be sitting there pretty happy with himself because, uh, yeah, he's basically leading the championship, isn't he? So, um, yeah, and for, for Toyota as well, obviously, they get maximum points for the manufacturers. So it's a, it's a win-win for everyone there. But, yeah, uh, Cali, you know, Cali Ron Perez, let's be honest, let's just, you know, be honest here. He was definitely pushing. Like, he wasn't sitting there just relaxing. Like, for example, okay. so yeah. the, the final power stage, he did his usual trick of, yeah, I'm going for this. I want the full points on the power stage. And, yep, he duly delivered, got his power stage win. And, and that one, again, was another classic where he was down on the split uh, throughout the whole stage until the final split where he somehow pulled half a second out and is just able to do this. And it's just, uh, it's just phenomenal to watch. You just... You sit there and marvel at it because it's just like it's like the old days in one shot qualifying in Formula One where they have to like put it on the line to get pole position. This is exactly the same thing, but in, but in rallying where they you know they see the corner perhaps once or twice on the weekend and they have to just go at it. Uh, so 
Um, yeah, no, he, he, he was definitely pushing. He gave Serbs a bit of a run for his money on Saturday. But, but yeah, for Cali, this is the perfect start for him, really, because, um, yeah, this is a rally he really actually enjoys that much. He's finished second. And uh, yeah, as you said, the, the person who won got in full season. Obviously, it was complete domination from Toyota over the weekend. I mean, I, I saw that you had some comments from from new Hyundai rally boss Cyril Abitable say, saying that there was, you know, nothing for his squad to be too concerned about. But I don't know. It feels like they should probably be pretty concerned at the speed of those uh, the speed of those Toyotas. Yeah. So Toyota won sixteen of the eighteen stages, which was split across three of their drivers. So it showed just shows just goes to show it doesn't want to step. It wasn't just Seb who was fast, you know, the, the car is genuinely brilliant. So they've done work to the engine and a new aero package on that thing over the off-season. So, um, yeah, it was a very much of a... Everyone was quite surprised how dominant sides were because Hyundai, in the last uh, round of last year on, on the tarmac in Japan, were actually faster than Toyota. So, and, you know, this is another tarmac rally. So, yeah, everyone was a little bit surprised. And, yes, you're right. I mean, the, there was a lot of people saying, oh, I something to concern about, we, you know, we, uh, you know, we've got a lot of, lot of the season left. And just to sort of caveat why Cyril probably said some of that was that a lot of the reason why Hyundai were and M Sport were not quite um, on the on the same pace as Toyota was that in their sort of pre-event tests, uh, it was a lot more wintry. So they prepared all their cars for snow and ice and it turned out to be bone dry. So, and once you've gone down that direction with the car, it's very difficult to get it back to a sort of completely dry setup. So you are you are losing out a little bit. Like, yes, they managed to improve it over the weekend, but you're not going to be able to... Once you've gone down that road, it's difficult to come back. So um, they were always sort of going to be have their one arm behind their backs. But yes, I, if I was uh, M-Sport boss and, and the Hano boss, I would be concerned at this point. What about what about those M Sport Pumas? Obviously, it looks like they had some power steering issues across the weekend, but where are they kind of at with the outright pace of that car. And just based on what you just said about, you know, obviously there being some issues with setup for the Hyundais and, and, and for the for the Fords, do you have some confidence that we could see, you know, some good battles as the year goes on and not just Toyotas blowing everyone away? Yeah, I do. I think it's, this is a sort of, an un, it's like one of those sort of rally-specific type of events. It's quite an unusual one in terms of the grand scheme of things and everything else in the season. So uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't think we're going to see a complete do- total domination of the entire season. Like Hyundai have obviously spent a lot of uh, what, you know time and hours into their new aero package, and you can see that you know they they haven't just sat there still over the winter. They've done a lot of work. So, um, and we saw just how good they were at bouncing back from. Let's be honest, an absolutely horrific Monty last year where they were nowhere. This year they've already got a podium under their belts and. Um, if you look at last year, they were actually the better car uh, for the second half of the campaign. So I've got no worries that, that Hyundai will, will be at a real uh, toy to him. But M-Sport, is, is, I'm perhaps a little bit more concerned because uh, it doesn't appear as though they've done much in the way of development with that Puma over the winter. And, you know, they have they have a, uh, you know, a limited resources, shall we say, compared to the other two teams and not a full factory outfit. So um, they really have to be clever with what they do with the car. Um but having said that, like Panak in the last stage yesterday, it was only 0.6 seconds slower than Rogan Pera. So like in an out and out, like full on attack, he's still in the mix uh, and has shown he can be in the mix. They just need to be a bit more consistent. So yeah, they won the event last year, but 
a lot of things have changed since then. Um, and obviously they did have loads uh, for that event. So, yeah, it, it, uh, it's, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit more concerned about Ensport, but, I, you know, if there's a team that will sort it out, and let's be honest, they've really gone all in with Sino at Tanak, so they have to, they kind of have to deliver this year. So I'm pretty confident they will. Uh, I'm just not sure whether they'll be uh, we're able to do that in Sweden for the next round. It might take a bit more time. And we thank our good mate Tommy for his time there. Okay, Stefan, it is Castro mailbag time. Uh, we couldn't split a couple of questions this week, so we're going to go with two questions. Uh, the first is from Daniel Madsen, who asked, why the supercar season is only 12 rounds when tracks like QR, Phillip Island, and Winton are missing out, and wouldn't more racing be better for the sport and provide more Gen 3 data? Yes, on both counts, that is 100% correct, but it also costs money to go racing, and that's the constant struggle we see between the series and the teams over the size of the calendar. Um, but in saying that, 12 is 100% on the lean side, particularly if Supercars presses on with plans to A, go back to New Zealand, and B, add a few, like up to three F1 races to the schedule. We're definitely going to have to expand at some point if all that stuff is going to happen. Stefan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's just economics, unfortunately. The deal, as you suggest there, with the teams is for 12 events and any extras, they've got to pay the teams more money. And unfortunately, the money's not really around in event land at the moment. Like each one, to a degree, relies on some state government funding. And if you look at, say, F1, like their calendar has expanded rapidly because there's governments out there just throwing money at them to come and yeah. race in their country where supercars doesn't have that luxury with the state governments. And, yeah, hence Ipswich, Phillip Island, Winton, they all miss out, which uh, which is a shame. Uh, the other question is from Justin Olden, who says he'd like to see the Gen 3 shakedown days at QR and Winton promoted as big events by supercars to try and get some traction ahead of the new season in the mainstream media. Uh, Stefan, probably knowing exactly when those days are going to be would be a good start in terms of, you know, trying to get some people out there and trying to build some momentum when these new cars do hit the track. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a good idea, but the way it's played out, certainly, uh, not only is there the uncertainty about when the shakedowns are going to be, but I'm not sure if it's a good thing to have a lot of media and uh, fans and attention around when the cars do their initial shakedowns because there might be uh, quite a few teething problems to uh, to solve. Yeah, I think what we will see is that, you know, that we will see a bit of fanfare around this all-in test that will happen at Sydney Motorsport Park on the 22nd of February. I think, you know, the plan is for there to be a proper media launch on the on the 20th, somewhere in Sydney probably. And then, you know, by then they should have a sense that these cars go around in circles like they're meant to <laughs> um, and they can, you know, get some mainstream media presence at Sydney Motorsport Park and, and really try and push that there's these new breeder cars and that they're going to go racing in Newcastle a few weeks later. Alrighty, let's hand out some Castrol stars of the week. Stefan, you can kick things off this week. Well, mine is going to all of those who are doing Ken Block tributes on their race cars at the moment. Oliver Solberg did so in the WRC at Monte Carlo and uh, Travis Pastrana has revealed one for his rallycross efforts and also Brad Keselowski's NASCAR is going to run a Block tribute uh, in some testing that's coming up. So, yeah, it's just really nice to to see that. And I hope the monster guys here can do something with the Tickford Mustang as well because, obviously, Ken was uh, a big part of that monster brand. Absolutely. That would be a fantastic thing to see on the grid 
in Newcastle. I'm going to give my Castrol star this week to US-based Aussie Cameron Shields, who qualified third for the Rolex 24 in the LMP3 class for Performance Tech Motorsports. That's a pretty good effort, and uh, hopefully he has a good run next weekend when they go racing. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport news. 